Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mason, when you think of Australia, what do you think of? Everything will kill you. <laughs> I don't know why everything wants to kill you in Australia, but I think of the horror stories of Australian redbacks, <laughs> and this is probably not where you actually thought I was going to go with this. No, I kind of love it, actually, because <laughs> I'm kind of with you there, you know? Maybe they're also angry because they've been isolated on a massive island together for mm. so long. They haven't had anyone else to kill, so they're just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just little lizards skittering around like, ah, fuck, there's nobody to harass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely that. I think for me, the colors, the rock formations, I mean, people think about the outback. Mm -hmm. One thing that people perhaps do not think about is drag queens. At least that was the case until the movie that we're doing today, which is the absolute spectacular Oscar winner, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. A movie that I have not seen yet, and it's probably why it didn't jump to the top of mind. When you asked about Australia... Yeah, that wasn't your first thought. <laughs> I don't have the context of this movie yet, so... Yeah. Well, speaking of Australian movies, though, we do have some pretty strong reference points. Like, for some reason... We had Crocodile Dundee 2 on VHS when mm -hmm. we were kids. I'm not sure why only the second one. I mean, when I rewatched the first one as an adult, I was like, oh, because of the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> the second one is way tamer in that particular way. There's more violence, but less drugs. But yeah, so like we grew up watching that type of Australia. But of course, like every country, it is full of many, many things. And I think that's actually a big part of what I love so much about this movie is that it contains so many of those things. They're in the outback. They're performing beautiful drag performances. The costumes are amazing. They're meeting Aboriginal Australians. They're meeting outback homophobes. It's like the whole gamut. And I'm sure the entire environment is trying to kill them at the same time. Yes! Yes. <laughs> I mean, if it's in the desert, mm -hmm. the one thing that I allow myself to do when I have not seen a movie that is on the list is watch the trailer for it because I think that's accessible mm -hmm. to anybody. Yeah. And it's not cheating because I could have come across it naturally. It just so yeah. happens that I'm now watching the movie, et cetera, et cetera. But I have seen that there is a large component of desert survival. <laughs> and there so is. I'm very interested to see that and also how the outback is portrayed and what yep. snakes and spiders and emus try to kill them. So Just heat, lack of heat. water. I mean, yes. part of what makes this so fun, though, is you get all of that. And on top of it is the costuming that these people have taken along with them. So mm -hmm. just as like a super baby little plot overview, they are going from where they live and perform in Sydney to Alice Springs, which is in the dead center of Australia. Mm. It's technically in the Northern Territory, but it's pretty much dead center of the country in the middle of Outback. <laughs> so they're driving from Sydney to Alice Springs to perform at a hotel there. So of course they have all of their gear with them, which makes for some absolutely fantastic shots of just these incredible bright colors. I've never been, full disclosure, I have never been. I would love to go, but I think of it as being colorful, beautiful reds, that type of thing, rich earth tones, which are my favorite colors. 
but then you take that and you put silver and neon and all of this stuff on top of it. And that is just something that I have never seen on film anywhere else. Right. So I've recently become a bit of a geography buff. And mm. when... <laughs> don't bragging no no no! don't get your hopes up humble brag mason is a geography buff excuse me i play global and worldle <laughs> um, <actually>. every day <laughs> but no i've really taken an interest in geography and looking at the continent of australia it's really incredible the ratio of the outback the desert type arid climate to those coastal areas. And there are even parts of Australia like where the ocean meets that very arid climate. So greenery and those places where life thrives are kind of rare and mostly on the eastern portion of the continent. So if you're talking about Alice Springs, which, like you said, is dead center, you're surrounded by thousands and thousands of miles of desert, essentially. So mm -hmm. I'm very, very interested. Probably part of seeing it as colorful is influenced by other movies. Baz Luhrmann's Australia being one mm, of them. I think mm -hmm. he really was like, I'm going to show you the beauty of all of this. And I mm -hmm. love that about that movie. So as some context, this movie was made in 1994. We've really been 90s heavy. And I'm sure that some people are like, why? And it's probably because we are getting older. <laughs> we were born in the 80s. <laughs> so these are the movies of our childhood. And the cast of this is amazing. I mean, we have Hugo Weaving and Guy Pierce and Terrence Stamp as our leads. And that really is just such an amazing group of people. They made this at a time when they were sort of earlier in their careers, mm -hmm. especially for Hugo Weaving, and, well, especially for Guy Pierce, who is like a baby in this. Terrence Stamp, of course, has had a long career that predates this. But I just love this 90s glorious celebration of Australia, of drag, which is a whole thing we have barely touched on, which is just drag culture and drag mm -hmm. performance. And that's personally something that I really love. I love the aspect of not just the performance of gender, but the parody of gender. Like mm -hmm. drag is inherently comedic, mm -hmm. which I think is something that a lot of people, <laughs> Governor Billy of Tennessee, where we are oh, from. Geez. I know. We'll save that for <laughs> This after. guy. That guy. We're going to save that for later. Yeah. But drag has always been comedic. It's always been political. It's always been many, many things. And I'm not an expert in this, but a lot of it depends on how you want to see things. Men performing as women on stage is almost as old as time. I think it was Socrates that was like, women can't have the emotional depth for this, so men are going to have to play these characters. So a lot of it depends on what you want to include. But drag as performance art, drag as political and gender satire, just as straight up comedy, there's so much to it. And it is so much fun. Mm -hmm. So much fun. Also, the drunkest I've ever been in my entire life was at a drag show. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I also got relatively drunk at a drag show because we went to a sangria making <laughs> class. This is during the pandemic. And one of the great things that came out of that was kind of an exploration of what is out there that might not be in your area, but is still mm -hmm. kind of like an event. Yeah. So myself, my wife, and a group of friends got together for this class that was being hosted via Zoom, but with three incredible queens. And it was the most interactive, fun experience. And, you know, of course, at the end, you've been making sangria this whole time and you toast and <laughs> dance and put on yep. costumes. They encouraged all of us to find our own drag costumes in the personas. process. Yeah, personas yeah. in the process. It was fantastic. Oh, man. I mean, that sounds like an absolute blast. 
I went to a drag brunch one time with a good friend, and that was really, really fun. It was a little more mellow because it's brunch, and we're drinking, and we're having mimosas, and we're having an absolute blast. The other time, though, (laughs) oh, man. So this was in Seattle. So I lived in Seattle for a while. Actually, both of those things were in Seattle, which, of course, has Capitol Hill, which has many, many forms of performance that you can go see. So I went to the launch party at, it was called Our Place. So my friend and I had had a very, very bad week. My friend Chelsea. And she had wanted to go to this drag show that they were doing like a special show because one of the people who performed there often was actually in a TV show. So they were going to do the pilot episode showing. They were going to do a big show before it. So Chelsea was like, hey, listen, I've really wanted to go to this. We've both had shit weeks. Why don't we go? The problem with this is that Chelsea and I are both the type of people who are usually one of the relatively chill people in a group. Now, I have this theory that you need the crazy friend because the crazy friend sets the bar. When you have two girls who are used to having someone else as a benchmark, we, oh my God. So (laughs) we went to have dinner. It basically just like keeps ratcheting up and it keeps ratcheting up. Nobody knows where to stop. stop. Yeah. Exactly. So Chelsea and I went to meet at this like cute little restaurant first. We had dinner and I had, I'm sorry, mom. I had two gin and tonics, just normal sized ones there. Bad week, like I said. (laughs) And public transportation, very important. Mm -hmm. Is mom anti-gin and tonic? No, but mom is not going to like how drunk I get. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I had the two gin and tonics. We went to the drag show. I was like, you know what? Let's not switch. It's not a good idea to switch alcohol. Chelsea has been having beers, so she's, like, normal. <laughs> and I order at the bar. This place, God love them, gave me a pint glass full of gin and tonic. Ooh, good for them. Y- yeah. So Chelsea would get another beer, and I would be like, you know, uh, feel a little tipsy, whatever. She's like, no, have another drink with me. Uh. And I'm not blaming her because to her, she's having beers. So, like, she's at beer number three. And this is now we're a yeah, couple but it's hours gin in. gin and tonic, like, one and a quarter, one and a half, maybe. Yeah. So, like, over time, we're staying there. We were there for a long time. And so she's, I think, not realizing how far ahead of her I'm getting because uh, we're going one-to-one. And mm-hmm. she's having a pint of beer, and I'm having a pint of gin and tonic. <laughs> Oh, Any man. other time, I would be thrilled to get served that. But <laughs> that in this so... case, oh. yeah, there's some disparity. Oh, man. I made some Uber drivers very unhappy that night. <laughs> and I say some because I literally did get out of one and switch to a different one. Oh, Like a... Oh, my. Anyway. At least you didn't have to pay any cleaning fees, hopefully. No, I didn't. Good. I didn't. I did lose <laughs> a Keith Haring earring that I really loved. Aww. And I did contact both Uber and Lyft <laughs> to try to get it back. <laughs> But I made it home. The point of this story is I have a track record of profoundly enjoying drag shows. Mm-hmm. It's worth calling out, too, that that is a space that I know that a lot of people in the LGBTQ community do not appreciate, having been invaded by groups of girls and bachelor parties, mm-hmm. bachelorette parties. That's not really something I can weigh on on except to say I enjoy them and I try to be a full appreciator and participant rather than just a spectator. I think at any show like that, They are wanting audience participation and the audience to be having as much fun. Yes. I think there's nothing wrong with that part. Yeah, as much fun as possible, especially, and this is true of any type of performance, any type of performance art, as long as you are being respectful of the performers and why you would choose to scream or talk over a performance like that, I cannot imagine because it is the most fun. Like, I have been so impressed just at the level of performance. But that's something that we definitely see in this movie is like the level of work and performance that's going into this 
and how much a lot of different people appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. But as Shepard Book would say, there is a special level of hell reserved for people that talk at drag shows. So. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. Yeah. And that's true. Oh, man. I have so many pictures that I've taken, too, because I think just visually I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to take every photograph that I can. Some of my favorite pictures that I've ever taken were many years ago at Knoxville Pride. Mm -hmm. And some of those I'll have to post some because I just really love those. So one of the things that really sucks, and this is, again, I'm not going into the whole big thing, but one of the things that really sucks about the Tennessee drag bill situation is that I'm sure that there are people who are listening to us far outside of the South who have a very particular image of what the South is like, especially around these issues. And it sucks that they're not entirely wrong, but they're also not understanding that there are big, strong, healthy communities of queer people in the South who are doing the work and standing up for each other and for everyone and for all of our rights. So like Knoxville Pride is my favorite pride that I've ever been to. The atmosphere, the vibe, the brilliance, the fact that it happens on Gay Street. <laughs> so I just hope that we get to a point where that full diversity of experience in places like the South is understood and appreciated. Absolutely. Who knows more about what it's like to fight for that than those people? Yes. It's very easy to be far away and fight that fight, but to be in there fighting that fight, those are the people that I admire the most, I think. Absolutely. And I'm sure that's part of why this movie made it into our season one. It is. I snuck it in. <laughs> yep, you did. <laughs> it was a surprise to me to see this because, as you mentioned, there were a lot of people that I knew as actors in this movie, but I didn't know the movie itself. And potentially because it doesn't get the widest audience due to subject matter, I'm not sure. But when I was talking to others about what we were doing next, very few people had heard of this movie. And I'm excited to watch it and be able to advocate for it because I know it's something you love and I'm sure that I will enjoy it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as an adventure movie, too, I didn't sneak it in because I wanted some type of issues-based conversation about this. It's more that it is an adventure movie, and mm -hmm. I think it should be included in this conversation. And I wouldn't want this awesome road trip adventure comedy to be considered something else because of the premise. Yes. So, like, essentially what happens is we leave the city, we go into the outback, we encounter many, many unexpected things, we have survival scenarios, we meet unexpected characters along the way, we make it to a destination. This is the structure of the movie, and mm -hmm. it is an adventure structure. So I'm not trying to do anything except bring what I think is a great adventure movie. It's adventures in the title! The Adventures of Priscilla. True. Well, I have a blank notebook here and <laughs> a pencil, and I... For one, I'm very ready to watch The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. What about you? I am ready. Let's do it. You don't mind me asking, what kind of cabaret do you do? We dress up in women's clothes and parade around mouthing the words to other people's songs. I've um, been asked to do a show out of town. You've got to be joking. Ta-da! I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. You actually make money by dressing up like a woman. You can make a fine living in a pair of heels. But then I spend so many nights How long have we been on the road? Four and a half hours. And I learned how to get along and so I'm back. From out of space. I just walked in the I mean, who is the fish that runs this bloody hotel in the middle of nowhere anyway? Your mother? No, my wife. 
I'm married. Sorry. You got us into this, and I suggest you start thinking about how to get us back. That's <laughs> oh, nice. In a hideous sort of a way. Hello. Nice night for it. Where are you blokes from? Uranus. Oh, good. We're back. We're watching Priscilla Queen of the Desert. A fantastic film. I'm going to spoil it for everybody. There's no <laughs> drama, no wait. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I mean, Emily, you know me pretty well at this point, so I'm sure that you suspected this was the outcome. I did. But it was still very fun to watch I will be, I would say, evangelizing for this movie a lot more in the future because it needs to be more well-known, I think. I had so much fun watching it again and watching it with you. Then I had, again, more fun even researching how it was made and all the little details. And the beauty of a movie like this is that it was a small crew, a small cast, a small budget. It is shot entirely on location. There is no studio time. So this is like the ideal movie to learn the production history because it's not like, oh, and then we gave $35 million to ILM. It's like, and then we went to Kmart. <laughs> and that's not even a joke. They did the costumes for this movie on a really tiny budget and they used they used one of the costume designers' mom's Kmart discount because she was an employee. <laughs> and then won an Oscar for it. And then won an Oscar for it. So, I mean, that kind of nitty-gritty detail, it just doesn't get any better than this movie. So I'm excited to talk about all of that. And I'm just really happy that you like it. Yeah. I mean, I knew you would, but it's always still, you know, affirming. Well, I think we dug up a lot on the production side. But first, for those who haven't seen the movie, weren't able to watch it with us... By the way, if you are interested in watching the movie with us, we have been recording the interim and that will be up on our Patreon soon. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. would you like to run through the plot? <laughs> a most fabulous plot, I might say. It is a very fabulous plot. Yes, I would. I had a lot of fun writing this one too, so. Then let us do this. I'm ready. I'm very excited. Every time I feel like I'm going to potentially let you down. <laughs> no, don't. No. Okay. They've always lived up to expectations. Oh, thank you. Okay. It's 1994 in Sydney, Australia, and Tick Bellrose is having a rough night. On stage as his drag persona, Mitzi Del Bra, his sad ballad doesn't really hit with the audience because they never do. Don't do sad songs at karaoke. Someone actually throws a beer can at his head, triggering his friend Adam, in character as Felicia Jolly Goodfellow, to deliver some sick burns to the offending audience member. While recovering backstage, Tick gets a call from a mysterious woman that triggers a flashback. He's in a hospital, wearing a chandelier, and she asks him for a favor. It was a fabulous chandelier, too. You love that chandelier. <laughs> I love that chandelier. I stopped in the middle of the movie to just be like, okay, not only is he wearing a chandelier, it's on. Like, it's fully <laughs> it's blinking. working, blinking chandelier. It was fantastic. My favorite thing about the chandelier shot, actually, it's in there twice because they use it at the end yeah, too. But yep. my favorite thing about the chandelier shot is his elbows up on the top of the costume. And he's mm -hmm. just like got a cigar and a lighter, just that sort of perched up elbows. Like he's waiting patiently, yep. but it's on his chandelier costume and not on like a half wall or something. I don't know. I think it's really funny. So he's wearing a chandelier. This is basically most of the information we have at this point. After the show, Tick calls his friend Bernadette, who has some shocking news of her own. Her partner, Trumpet, has just died. And this is actually a detail I did not pick up until I had this playing today while I was writing this, just for fun. Trumpet died of a slip and fall slash asphyxiation accident while peroxiding his hair at home. 
So he was bleaching his own hair. The fumes caused oh. him to fall and pass out, and then okay. he died. Oh. Which is a very sad and hilarious sad. way to go. Every moment in this movie, I would say even some of the most somber moments in this movie still have some mm -hmm. levity to them or some dark humor to them. So if you're listening to this situation and we're kind of saying it's still funny, it's because the movie definitely has that undercurrent the entire time. Like it wants it to still be funny. Right. After the funeral, Tick proposes an idea he thinks will be good for both of them. Getting the hell out of town. His mystery caller asked him to do a month of shows at a resort in Alice Springs, in the middle of the outback. Bernadette eventually gets on board, only to discover that Adam, her very favorite person in the whole world, will be coming along. But in spite of being insufferable, Adam has a silver lining. Wealthy parents. Adam tells them that some time in the wild might cure him of his personality, and they buy him an old tour bus. Meet Priscilla, queen of the desert. I can't imagine having parents that... First of all, so badly want you to not be yourself that they yeah. buy you a bus. Yeah. <laughs> but also just are able to do that on a whim. He must come from a very interesting family in order for that yeah, situation well, to work. We do get some shots of his mom. But he also mentions in that scene that they paid $10,000 for it, which in mm -hmm. 1994 is a lot of money. It's still a lot of money. So even though it's a ratty old bus and they're always making fun of it, it's also like a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, that's Priscilla. And that's also the scene where we get the quote that's in our intro to our podcast. Once they're on the road, our trio gets along for approximately 12 seconds, and then we begin to see that there might be a slight problem with this whole Bernadette and Adam thing. We also learn that the mystery woman is actually Tick's wife. They reach a town called Broken Hill a few days into their drive and disembark fully kitted out to check into their hotel and then head to the bar, of course. The patrons of the local watering hole range from confused to hostile, especially one woman who is clearly just mad that they're prettier than her. But a stone-cold Bernadette threatens to light that bitch's tampon on fire and then beats her in a drinking contest, which seems to settle things for everyone. In the morning, they find that not everyone came around because someone has painted hateful graffiti on Priscilla. That scene, though, of Bernadette, that drinking scene that's got the parallels to Raiders and Marion Ravenwood is having a drinking contest with that guy, it really smacks of that scene. Like, I think it must have been a reference. It feels like it must have been a reference to me, the way that mm -hmm. some of those shots of the faces... One of the things that I wanted to point out about those scenes where they stop in some of these rural places is they are still dressed to the nines, yes. like everywhere they go. Everything's an event and they are ready to show out. And that's one of my favorite things is, I don't want to call it extravagance because it's not, it's them being themselves in public and they are unashamed of that. Yeah. And every place is a potential stage. I love that. Yeah. I love that too. Everything's an occasion. Every street is a stage. Absolutely. So wanting to shave off a few days from their trip, they make the very bad decision to take a shortcut via an unpaved road, which makes for a great opera number from a very silver atom, but apparently also makes for a gas tank and fuel line full of dust. Stranded in the desert, Bernadette goes off in search of help, while Adam paints the bus lavender and Tick works on show choreography. After getting ditched by an everything-phobic ranch couple, they are found by an aboriginal man who takes them to a campfire party, where they perform for their hosts, accompanied by the didgeridoo, and even give their rescuer, Alan, a drag makeover that he has an absolute blast with. So apparently not everyone is an asshole, just colonizers. So one cool thing about Alan is that his real name is Alan, Alan Dargan, and he is a nationally known didgeridoo player. Mm. It's really cool. Like, I looked him up after, and he has since passed, but he has a lot of recorded music. So that's kind of awesome that they just, like, it chose is. the feature, like, hey, this is a cool guy. He's got a cool career. We're going to just drop him in here. Yeah. 
Shout out to Alan. Yeah, I loved that character. And honestly, the entire group of people that gets introduced to them there with Alan are all just very loving and accepting. And, you know, it's a shock at first, but they all just end up having a great time together in the desert. Yep. That's a really fun scene. It and is. just like all the happy faces. And we'll talk more about that. Back on the bus, they make a sex doll kite that brings Bernadette and me a lot of joy to help flag down the tow truck guy that Alan hooked them up with. Tow truck guy is Bob. And as it turns out, he's a fan. He somewhat optimistically thinks that his town would just love to see a drag show, but really they just want to see his wife shoot ping pong balls out of her vajage. Cynthia is complicated. In the aftermath of her performance, Cynthia takes off to live her truth, and Bob decides that the best thing for everyone really is if he just comes along on the bus. Bob gets them back on the road, but unfortunately that road takes them to the mining town of Cooper Peavy. They need a new gas tank, but they also need to stay in their rooms because even optimistic Bob knows that they shouldn't push their luck with these blokes. Did you like my little bit of accent that I had there? Just a little tiny, tiny It was touch. there. I did notice it. Hey, blokes. That's worse. That's way worse. I'm making a very neutral statement about all of this so that our Australian friends don't think <laughs> that I endorse this. <laughs> uh, listen, I don't feel like I can do an Australian accent, but <laughs> I will say that back when all the Lord of the Rings stuffers came out regarding New Zealand accents. I was about to say, you better. I know. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> I know you do, but I was just really worried there for a second. For anyone second. who's like, please, dear God. Yeah, so those special features had Peter Jackson saying his name a lot, and I, being a little dork, as we have all learned, mm -hmm. would practice it and say, Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson, just go around going, Peter Jackson. So I feel like I can't do an Australian <laughs> accent at all, and I can only do two words of a New Zealand accent. <laughs> two and proper those, nouns in those two New words Zealand are accent. Peter Jackson. That's <laughs> excellent. Thank you. Okay. Adam, of course, will not stand for that. High on a mystery pill and dressed to the nines, he crashes a kegger to antagonistically flirt with people who want to kill him. He takes a rough beating, but Bob and Bernadette find and save him before it gets worse. They keep limping along toward Alice Springs, bonding with Bob, and enjoying the period of time where Adam can't speak because of his injured jaw. So they make it there with a warm welcome from the staff and Tick's wife, Marion, and Bernadette straight up passes out when Marion introduces Tick's eight-year-old son, Benji. Tick is excited to spend time with Benji, but he's very scared that his son will judge him. After their show, though, he sees that Benji already knows, or knows enough, and enjoys watching him perform. As they settle in, Adam and Tick are shocked that Benji is just cool with it all. He doesn't judge them. He sees the joy in what they do. He understands that people are gay. He wants to play Legos. After a day trip to fulfill Adam's childhood dream of hiking King Canyon in full drag and finishing up their show run, they prepare to head out only to discover that Bob and Bernadette are going to stay and try to have a life together. Benji is coming to Sydney to spend some time with his dad and Uncle Adam, and on the way, they practice singing Mamma Mia, leading us into our final sequence with them performing the famous ABBA show back on their home stage. All is finally well and glittery with the world. The end. That was a fantastic plot summary. <laughs> I was wanting to interject that entire time with all of my favorite moments, but <laughs> you were right to stop me earlier. I didn't <laughs> mean to stop you. Did no, I? no, no. No, you didn't stop me. It was just like, yeah, we're going to talk about that later. And I was like, oh, right. There's a later. <laughs> there's a later. <laughs> yes. I had the same thing, actually, too, where I was like, oh, we should stop here and talk about that. I mean, even now, I'm like, go back to the Adam and Benji thing, because I just thought mm -hmm. that was really sweet. It really was. I mean, this movie, it does a lot of things. It does them all mostly pretty well. And one of the things that I just really love is that toward the end, you get this kind of, to use a term that I think I'm stealing from you from just like a conversation we were having the other day, 
the generational catharsis. Yeah. Benji doesn't have the baggage. And then they get to see him not having the baggage. And that yes. helps them with their baggage. And yes. that's just a very satisfying thing to see. Especially like that one scene where Benji is playing with Adam just in the floor. And I don't remember what comment it is. It's like, does that have a boyfriend or something? Mm-hmm. And Adam is just like, oh, oh, shit. It's not an issue. Your parents yeah. didn't talk to you the way that mine talked to me. The face, just like that blank face of like, oh, it could be like that. That's really a wonderful moment. Adam even said something. I don't know if it was intentionally inflammatory or not. A lot of things that Adam says <laughs> is intentionally inflammatory. And I wouldn't put it past him to kind of try to poke this child yeah. a little bit too. But I think he said something to the effect of, you know, your dad doesn't like girls, right? Yeah, that's right. And then Benji responds with, well, does he have a boyfriend? You know what your father does for a living? Yeah. So I suppose, you know, he doesn't really like girls then. Does he have a boyfriend at the moment? No. Neither does, Mum. She used to have a girlfriend, but she got over her. Do you want to come play in my room? I've got Lego. Sure. Because he wants his dad to be happy. He doesn't care who it's with. And it took Adam by surprise, I think, like you said, that he was so not unfazed by it, but he'd been unburdened. Yeah, unburdened. Perfect, perfect word. Yeah. I mean, Adam, like you said, does spend a lot of time being an antagonistic person. I never took any of his interactions with Benji that way. And maybe part of it is just we do get this scene in the movie of Adam being manipulated, possibly abused, at the very least being groomed for abuse by Mm -hmm. an uncle, it looks like. Mm -hmm. So we know that what I'll say is like he has a sensitivity to children and how they can be treated. So I always took it as like Adam doesn't direct any of that crap at Benji because the one person he wouldn't do that to is a child. I think that's fair. I think for me, having not seen the movie before, it was coming off the back of a lot of Adam being my least favorite person. (laughs) And I mean, not even antagonizing, but straight up dead naming and kind of making fun of Bernadette and her life choices and all these things. And when he was talking to Benji about his dad not liking women, it kind of hit me like if an adult were to go up to a kid and be like, hey, you know, Santa Claus isn't real, right? Interesting. Yeah. And the kid can react to that in any number of ways. But he, of course, had so much grace in that moment. And like you said, was unburdened with kind of the societal influences that tend to push children into a judgmental place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I enjoy like as they get closer, there's a really nice moment like at the end of the show run where they're going out to the bus and Adam has Benji up under his arm and he's laughing and giggling. You know, you get to see kind of just the healing sort of bonding and the family dynamics. I mean, in the first part of this, we talked about chosen family Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of that nice healing kind of family dynamic that happens toward the end of this movie, but it takes a while to get there. Like there's some painful stuff in the middle, both externally, but then also like within our group, they hurt each other. Yes. Kind of a lot. Yeah. I mean, you had called out hurt people, hurt people, which, (laughs) well, I mean, it's truer than we know. And it kind of sucks that it rhymes because it's a very real thing, but it was tough. It was tough to hear Adam say those things, especially when you're hoping that somebody with Adam's background has the ability to see what Bernadette has been through and to not open wounds like that. I think it's fair to say that Adam has some self-esteem issues that he might be putting off on other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem with that kind of behavior is we can understand it, but that doesn't dismiss it. Yes. We are not cinema therapy, so we won't be going (laughs) too far down that trail. No. Cinema therapy, if you ever are listening, we would love to have you on. 
Yes. So, first reactions. Glitter appearing out of nowhere. <laughs> yes. I love it. There is tons of glitter, tons of glamour shots, and we commented on the lost art of the glamour shot, which we haven't seen in <laughs> movies in a very long time, but it made a fantastic appearance here. And then there was clearly somebody that was assigned to glitter in this movie. Yes. There was like a principal glitter artist or something <laughs> whose job was to just throw glitter in the air at important moments or kind of drizzle glitter in front of the camera lens yeah. to give it that starry look. I want somebody walking in front of me doing that just yeah. at all times. For our dream guest for this episode, it's going <laughs> to be principal, principal glitter, glitter artist. artist. I love it. <laughs> so normally when we pick episode titles, we kind of just choose something that we happen to say during a show. But during this watch of the movie, there was a line that we were both like, oh, that's it. That's the title. Mm -hmm. And it's the heavy duty woman in us all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if it wasn't that, I think that principal glitter artist would make a really good, strong second for the title. <laughs> I like it. So I think I kind of stole the glitter as like a first reaction. What jumps out to you? Okay, so I will probably sound like a broken record when I say, you know what stood out to me? The dynamics of the interactions the people were having. <laughs> I don't know. I really like relationships. Yeah. It's something that's important to me in my everyday life, but also something that I keenly pick up on in movies. And seeing that triad, that group yeah. where you kind of have these obviously very strong personalities coming together and making it work-ish on the road, watching how they interacted with each other was really interesting. And Hugo kind of being the mediator of the two because Bernadette and Adam, oh my gosh, they rip <laughs> into each other. And it is definitely tit for tat. And I don't know if you were to count score who won, but they would trade blows and Hugo was kind of in the middle. Speaking, though, of a lot of those scenes where we have the snappy lines back and forth, one thing that I really enjoyed learning about, so the director and writer of this movie is a guy named Stefan Elliott. And he said, actually, oh, you know what? This is a kind of a sidebar. I swear to God, I'll make it back to where I was coming from. Do you remember during the movie, there's a shot. I think it's when Alan is like walking them back to the bus in the day after kind of the party. Mm hmm and there's the feather that blows into the bush. Yes. And you said, that's, that's the shot. That's a great shot, yeah. That's a great shot. Turns out, that's the shot that inspired the whole movie. Interesting. So, Stefan Elliott is from Sydney, is from this culture, grew up as a young man going to a lot of these shows. The movie came into his mind based on seeing an extremely drunk drag queen lose a feather out of a headdress and then just watch it rolling down the street. And he thought that it looked like a Sergio Leone film. Mm. And that shot then kind of gelled this whole concept in his mind. And he wrote the movie in 12 days, basically, wow. based on that idea. And the reason that he says that it flowed so easily is just he'd been spending so much time with these people hanging out in these clubs that a lot of the things he used in the movie are just things he heard people say. So yeah. part of the reason that the dialogue is so hilarious and amazing is because it's just the funniest lines that he'd heard his social group use. That's amazing. It is, isn't it? So I think the writing is amazing, but it's also amazing because it's largely just listening. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm about to make my Northern Territories debut, looking like a fucking Warner Brothers cartoon character has hit me over the head with an iron. I think you look more like a Disney witch myself. Oh, shut your face, Felicia. 
least I don't look like somebody's tried to open a can of beans with my face. But, you know, the cool thing, too, to me is, like, this movie is in many ways so unique, but it does have its classic film references, like I mentioned you know, Sergio Leone. But also, I feel like there are a couple of shots that are very influenced by Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, there are definitely, there are even costumes that clearly shout out Lawrence of Arabia. So it was on... I think a lot of people's minds, both from a costuming perspective and narrative perspective. It's interesting because there's like layers and layers, because on the one hand, you know, drag is often very referential. Movies are often very referential as well, mm-hmm. almost always. And just because, you know, maybe Lawrence of Arabia, drag queens, it's not like a straight line between them. We still get those cool sort of film references, those cultural references. We get a lot of Australian cultural references. And there's just a lot of cool shit all balled up in this movie. And I love that so much. Yeah. So in the intro, you alluded to these actors being kind of at the beginning of their careers. I'm curious if you know what their backgrounds were leading into this, how they got connected with the production team or Mm -hmm. the director. I do. So it is really kind of an interesting casting story. There are a couple of alternative casting details, like, oh, somebody turned this down, but not as much as we normally talk about. So what happened here is, and this kind of goes into the story of just how the movie happened at all. So the script was done. The funding was partially in place. The Australian Film Council, or whatever their official name is, apologies for not having that on hand, was going to give them a million dollars if they could secure the other half of the funding. So Stephen Elliott and the producer, whose name is Al, Al something, and I have forgotten, and then the cinematographer went scouting locations because they were going to do it all in location. And they took dresses with them, you know, to look at through lenses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then they were like, you know what, we're going to take a press, but we're going to take a promotional photo to like show people what this movie is going to look like so that we can then try to get them to fund us actually making mm. it. So the three of them got all dressed up in drag. I don't know that any of them are actually drag performers. So that must have been fun. Mm-hmm. Then they realized, oh, wait, we can't take a picture of three people with three people in the picture. So they flagged down. <laughs> so they flagged down some woman just driving down the road and were like, hey, will you take a picture of us? And she was like, uh, sure. <laughs> so in that way, it's kind of similar to that scene in the movie. But she did. And that picture was on the poster that they used to promote the film prior to Cannes and get the funding. I'm so, going to look that up right now. Somebody's clearly not on our Instagram because I put it on our story today. Oh, no, then I have seen it. Yeah. Good, yeah. So anyway, the reason I bring this up is they're in this process of trying to get the funding in place. And they realize we have to have a name. We have to have somebody. And one thing that we wondered during the movie was... Do we feel weird about the fact that they didn't cast any actual drag performers in this movie? Mm -hmm. Or not any, but like not as the leads. The interesting part there is they tried to. um, Literally, no one came to the auditions. Interesting. Okay. So, Stephen Elliott, they rented a space, they hosted auditions, they promoted it, they sat there for a week, and zero people came into audition. And Mm. at least in an interview that I watched that was, I think he said 10 years ago, so it would have been in around 2004. He was like, I think it's just because I held him too early in the day. Nobody's going to get up at nine. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's that. I don't know. <laughs> so they did actually try. So knowing that they needed a name to anchor it, Terrence Stamp's name came up. And they sent the script to his agent. And they hit him like just at the right time in his career. Because he had been playing these like super macho villainy types, mm-hmm. you know, like British villains and big masculine uh, kind of guys. 
And he was feeling extremely typecast. And he mm. actually tried to retire to his agent. He was like, I don't know. I don't want to keep doing the same kind of shit. I think I'm going to get out of the business. And she said, okay, but read this. So that was this. <laughs> so basically, yeah. Terrence Stamp was like, it's either quit acting or give me something fucking interesting to do. <laughs> and he was brilliant in it. I really appreciated the character and Terrence's accent, I think, bites quite a bit more during the insults that Bernadette was giving. And it just made some of her lines so iconic. So yeah. I, for one, really appreciated him in that role. Oh, he was so good. And there are lots of details about that process for him. I mean, he has said, you know, it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my career. And I know from both things he said and then from things the director has said that he had a whole journey with it, you know, like getting mm. to a place where I know there were moments where he was like, I'm not doing that. And then eventually came around to like, <laughs> and it's not always stuff that you think it's one of them was the painting the tongue for the lizards. Oh, yeah. That was his line was like, I am not painting my tongue blue. I have done too much for this. Well, <laughs> spoiler alert, line. he did he end does. up painting his tongue blue. <laughs> yeah. So he came around. He did. They did a take without it. And then eventually he was like, okay, I'm being a baby. Mm -hmm. Everything else I've done, this is the thing. Okay, let's paint the tongue. I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say he is the movie, but it is fair to say, I think, that it would not have worked without him. Yes, I think that is fair. And I can understand the emotional journey, especially when you're playing somebody that needs great representation and you may not feel as though you're the perfect person for that role. Getting yourself into the headspace where you are the right actor, mm -hmm. that's got to be interesting, especially when your career has been so focused on, like you said, the masculine kind of villainous British roles. Yeah. I mean, and once they had him, that was kind of the core. So like they had somebody mm -hmm. who was a name, somebody who was an extremely professional, solid actor. Then they had hoped to fill the other roles with real drag queens. So that's how it went. They were like, we're going to get one person to kind of anchor this, and then we're going to try to fill the other key roles with that. But then, of course, they struggled with that. So Stefan Elliott had just come out of working with Hugo Weaving on a project. Now, Hugo, at that point, was not very well established, did not have big credits or anything, but they had worked together before. And so Elliott had a lot of confidence that he would be a solid choice. So he just was like, I think we can do this with Hugo. It's going to be good, even if he's not super well known. And was Hugo Weaving at that time living in Australia? Because I know that he was born in Nigeria, spent a lot of time in Great Britain and Australia, but I don't know kind of where he was physically at this point in his career. I don't know for sure. I'm trying to remember the movie that they had just worked on. I know that they were in the same place physically because they were working on the same movie, mm. but I don't know. So that one was through kind of that personal relationship. Then casting Adam was a bit tricky. So he didn't want anyone too pretty. Well, he failed. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. He no, he did fail. But that's kind of the part of the story. So he was like, I don't want anyone too pretty. I want this to feel like the drag queens that I know. Mm -hmm. And Guy Pierce had been doing a soap opera. And I think he was also doing some like bodybuilding. I think he was like the junior Australia bodybuilding, whatever. Interesting. But he was looking for a change. So he was interested and they were like, oh, but look, 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 you got to do it. And he was like, no, he's too pretty. And they were like, you got to have something pretty on camera, man. <laughs> like that basically <laughs> is what they said. I think the language that he related that they had used with him was like, you need something pretty in the shot. <laughs> and that just, it's so mean and it just cracks me up. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Anyway, they talked him into it and he has of course since said, and you can see how well that worked out. We absolutely end up with the right person. I mean, to the degree that, and this is again in that 2004 interview, to the degree that he was like, Guyot has had trouble 
people are always asking him if he's gay and he's married and has a kid and like everybody's still typecasting him. Mm -hmm. It would be just after that point of that interview that Guy Pearce started really breaking out of that. So he's, of course, gone on to have a career way broader than this. But for a moment there, it was kind of, you know, something that he was worried about and even that Stefan Elliott was worried about. That's interesting. I don't have the personal history with Guy Pearce's early career. This is probably the earliest glimpse I've gotten at his career because I grew up knowing him for many other things. Memento. He was in LA Confidential. LA Confidential. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's had a very strong career and he's made interesting choices, which is one of my favorite things in an actor. But as far as the interesting choice to do this movie, he said that the director was like, Hey, are you going to be uncomfortable with this? And he was like, Nope, I think it's going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, howdy, was it? Yes. So they ended up with this fantastic cast that kind of came together and then had to train them on all of this stuff. And they did a lot of work with real drag queens and learning all of this stuff and learning about what goes into it and the walking and walking being a thing specifically called out, I guess, because of the shoes. Mm -hmm. But without going into too much detail there, because that pretty much, as far as I can tell, looks like what you think, just lots of practice and training and whatever. Stephen Elliott did say that the personas were not something that he scripted, that they just kind of came together as that person's sort of drag persona. Mm -hmm. Which is fantastic because, I mean, that's how it happens naturally. Yeah. And so it's really a telling thing that this group also had that same experience and, you know, went through it. It is. And for as much of the on-screen pieces that we get, man, I can't imagine what the off-screen was like. That (laughs) must have been so much fun. Well, you have teed me up for an amazing segue because that's what I was about to tell you is something about that. So sidebar detail, Terrence Stamp was particularly fixated on Jacqueline Bissett as like his inspiration. So he was Mm -hmm. like extremely into this sort of beautiful, classy British Mm -hmm. type of vibe, which of course we see. Okay. So to the fun stories though, they had been doing all of this rehearsing. (laughs) Guy Pierce was their dance captain. (laughs) (laughs) So like he was in charge of leading their dance rehearsals. Mm -hmm. They'd been rehearsing. On the last day of rehearsal, they did their camera and makeup wardrobe tests. And then, so the actual production team of this is pretty small. It's basically the writer-director, Stefan Elliott, that Al guy whose name for some reason I can't remember, who was the producer and he was very hands-on, very involved. And then like the cinematographer and then the costume people. I'm sure there were many more people that I'm not crediting there, but as far as stories, those are the people that seem to be in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so last day, the production team is like, you know what? I think we should take them out on a test drive. So they decided, we've done the makeup tests, the camera tests, we're going out on the town like this. And they didn't perform or anything, they just went out in Sydney, in the clubs. Awesome. And the quote from the director was, it was a complete fiasco, it couldn't have gone more fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a great phrase. (laughs) That's just a fantastic quote. And yeah, the test drive part, at first I was like, I don't know. That sounds a little... Yeah, how is this going to go? Yeah, how is this going to go? But if it couldn't have gone more fabulous, then man, what a treat it would have been to be be in one of those clubs to see them roll in. Right? That's another guest, is someone who was in the club. (laughs) So Hugo got so drunk that they had to put him under a table. (laughs) They had to be like, okay, you just go stay under there. (laughs) Oh, that's where that phrase Um, comes from. (laughs) Yeah, he's under the table. It's from Hugo. We can go weaving. (laughs) Guy Pierce, who at the time was very recognizable from his soap opera work, 
he got to be anonymous. And the way that Elliot put it was discovered the power of drag because he, for the first time in a long time, nobody knew who he was. Mm. And so he, and this is another quote, got to be obnoxiously rude to people and then apparently forgot he was in drag and tried to pick up a very confused woman. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't get any oh, better. It really doesn't get any better. That's funny. Oh man. Yeah. But at the risk of me talking too much in a row, it's kind of a good point to sort of talk a little bit about Australia, drag, Australian gay culture, Sydney in the 90s, and all of that kind of stuff. Because this movie doesn't come from a generic world of drag. And I didn't appreciate this fully until I started really researching it. It comes from a very specific Australian drag context. So Stephen Elliott, of course, came up in this world. And as he was traveling around elsewhere, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K., he was seeing that American and British drag was a lot more replicating. It was like, I'm dressing up as Barbra Streisand, and I'm going to look as much like Barbra Streisand as I possibly can, and I'm going to do the lip syncing. It was very much mimicry, whereas Aussie drag was like crazy bananas. <laughs> <laughs> he referred to it as like kabuki theater. He was like, it mm -hmm. was just insane. We're down here by ourselves, basically. And it was going more metaphorical and more ridiculous and just these big costumes. It wasn't as literal. So we see that in this movie a lot. And the reason that it feels different from some other drag representations that we've seen is because it is. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I noticed most when I was doing research on these various communities is in many ways, they are countercultural. And mm -hmm. if you have a unique culture to your area, your reaction to that and the counterculture that is formed is also unique to that area. And there are many things that unite these communities across borders, but there are just as many things that are fostered within them and make for unique experiences in each pocket of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's especially the case here. That's a really good point. And it's an interesting time and place because on the one hand, I mean, probably the first famous modern drag queen, Dame Edna, is Australian. Started performing in 1955, I think. Wow. So on the one hand, you've got long history of Australian drag. On the other hand, at the time this movie was made, there were sodomy bans still in place in Australia. You also have a vibrant gay and drag culture in Sydney in the 80s and 90s. You also have an incredibly high rate of HIV. And the phobia that comes with it, too. Yeah, that was hitting people really hard. And then, of course, we see that in the movie. Yes. The fear of it. Also, you have an unfortunately pretty high rate of hate crimes in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So you have both a community that is relatively safe and vibrant compared to other places in the world at the time. But in with that, you also have the hate crimes and the threats to people's health and all of it. So it was a lot of stuff all mixed up right there. But I guess the summary would be, but it was happening. Yes, It wasn't underground. It wasn't hidden. Sydney had it. So this is a big part of what life would have been like at that time in that place. Yeah. And one of the things that we pointed out at kind of at the beginning of the movie is that chosen family aspect, which mm -hmm. we keep saying that, and I'm sorry, but <laughs> to see those supporters of them be open about their support for this tour that they were going to be on. There were streamers. There was obviously massive amounts of glitter. <laughs> and we just remarked how beautiful it was to see that encouragement and that support being publicly made for their journey. 
And then, of course, the return home, they're embraced with open arms. It is family. Yeah. And on both occasions, it really shows through. Yeah, absolutely. All those points where the kindness happens are such bright spots throughout the movie. They're very recognizable moments, yes. even if it's just like when Adam goes to buy the paint. It's like right as they're leaving Broken Hill and they stop at the gas station and the guy just is like, oh, where are you blokes from? And he's and he makes the Uranus joke. Mm -hmm. And that guy's just like, ha, ha, great, you know. Where are you blokes from? Uranus. Oh, good. Like even just that, those small interactions where somebody is not judging or being a dick, the movie does a great job of making you appreciate those moments yes. and what those moments would feel like to someone who's always on the guard for what's coming at me. Yes. One nice thing, though, as far as Broken Hill. So it is, of course, presented in the movie as the least bad of the bad places they go. Of course, that is where they get the hate speech painted on their bus. But it's mm -hmm. also where people kind of come around and they're singing and dancing and they're having drinks together. But it's certainly not represented as like a haven <laughs> for the gay community. Yes. However, it is that now. Oh, awesome. Uh-huh. Broken Hill now hosts the Broken Heel Drag Festival. Oh. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, it's okay, excellent. So it is excellent. And especially when in a lot of those places, they only told the townspeople who were the extras. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Background people? I mean, background extras performers? works. Yeah. Yeah. So in many of those towns, the extras in the shots are just the townspeople. Mm -hmm. And in large part, what they told them was, we're shooting a movie here. Our leads are going to come down the street in a second. <laughs> and that's the extent And that's of how it. you get the natural reaction. Yeah. Yep. So those reactions, to a degree, are real reactions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So especially given that a lot of these people, this was a very new experience. It's not like Broken Hill was already cool and whatever, you know, just pretending to be afraid of them. But like, it has come a long way from being those reactions we were seeing live on film to being excited about what this movie brought to their town and having this drag festival and being celebrated for being a part of this. Absolutely. The movie also triggered a lot of drag road shows, too. <laughs> so pretty much immediately after, companies like Performance Company started doing exactly this and just like literally traveling around rural Australia oh. and giving drag shows. Hopefully in a lavender bus. <laughs> One can only hope. Yeah. And they were very popular, and some of them are still running. That's excellent. Wow. Pretty cool. Actual change. Another thing that I often pay attention to in movies is kind of the small moments that might fly under the radar. And first of all, with this movie, maybe there aren't any small moments. <laughs> it's all fairly garish. But the thing that stuck out to me was the time that it takes to do all of these things and the dedication that you have to have to bring along this type of clothing and the makeup and get into full drag when you're going into these small towns. And there was even a scene where, as they have been broken down in the desert, they still take the time to set up a table outside with full plates <laughs> and cups and knives and forks and... Serving bowls full of pills. Yeah, serving bowls full of pills and a full pineapple. A real <laughs> full pineapple sitting on the table. And it's just, I love the time that is taken to create these very specific environments. And clearly they know what they appreciate and what they like and are creating that for themselves. And that's something that I don't think I do for myself very much, you know, create the exact environment that I want to be in in any moment. But the fact that they were so willing to take that time really stood out to me. Yeah. No, I love that. I don't know. Do you think it comes from like a, I often don't have as much control 
over my life as I'd like to. And so, right. by God, wherever I land, I'm going to make it home. That's a great point. I don't know. But I do like that a lot. I will assert myself when and where I can. Yes. You know? And there are some great pieces of set design that happen as a result of that. You know, you mm -hmm. mentioned, of course, the pineapple and the bowl of pills. Speaking of set design, the interior of the bus. So the bus is a lot of fun. <laughs> it it is. is full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> it has a tanning bed down in the baggage compartment, I guess, that you I can guess get to so. from inside because Adam's down in there. What it looked to me like was that there was a bench seat that lifts up for extra storage underneath and they either hollowed it out or something and then installed their own tanning bed lights in there. Because <laughs> again, you have to remember they just bought this bus, but they took the time to install tanning bed lights in it so that Adam could yeah. tan on the road. And that's another one of those things like where you're insisting oh. on your environment and taking the time to create it. Adam has a lot of road demands that are not reasonable. The van is a very fun place. It is. It is. And one thing that's kind of fun about that, and I don't know the degree to which they just took advantage of that plan for the set design or how much they actually designed it for this purpose. But in a lot of those shots, someone is hiding in those clothes. So... <laughs> What? What does that mean? It means that the director is hiding in those clothes. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> so, so there's not a lot of room on that set. So they right. said that a lot of the time down in the baggage compartment, it was just like the sound people down there <laughs> hiding. Mm -hmm. And then the director would be, the way he put it was like, a lot of the time I had a lampshade on my head. Mm -hmm. So he's just like behind a stack of clothes or with a lampshade on his head. And then like in between takes, okay, Hugo, I want you to do this. That's excellent. So I wonder how much the shit is everywhere vibe is because they needed stuff to hide behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the question. One of the things that you mentioned was that this was produced on a pretty small budget. What did you say? About $2 million? Something like that. Yeah. But low budget movies tend to get very crafty and very resourceful. And I think you could see that. I mean, you mentioned the Kmart shopping trips and the employee <laughs> discount. But... It would not have been the same movie if it had been shot on a soundstage or in a different location or whatever. The fact that it was shot inside of a real bus just, I think, makes all the difference. And you feel more like you're there and like the space is more real, of course. For me, it's all about the locations. Mm -hmm. I just love the contrast between the type of colorful that the Outback is versus the type of colorful that they are. So I feel like you're not fully on board with my concept of colorful, but I guess I have also spent a lot of time outdoors enjoying those beautiful nuanced color combinations. I live in a fairly arid area right now. And so something about that, just the red rock, red earth, mm -hmm. then there's like a white sort of chalk hill and then the striations and the punchy bits of green and the color of the sky. Like to me, it feels very colorful. And then you get, of course, a totally different definition of colorful. Many colors that do not exist in nature. No, no, they don't. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't exist in natural fibers either. <laughs> you know, sequins and the neon green and all of the stuff. And that's just such a joy to see. You know, in a way, it's like a similar concept to a lot of the sort of editorial fashion photo shoots where they're like, juxtaposition. Yes. <laughs> you know? I don't disagree with your definition of colorful for the Outback. It was just when you said that, I'm thinking desert, not much variation. But then the way that it was shot definitely made it to be a very vibrant place. And there was yeah. a lot of contrast, a lot of 
oranges and reds and sage greens and blues and the stark white chalky cliff faces. So it was definitely a beautiful movie. The final show or the show that they do when they're in Alice Springs has a lot of sort of Australian national icons in it, Mm -hmm. but like make it drag and it's fantastic. (laughs) So you have the beautiful sort of Aboriginal art inspired background The first series of costumes is like plants. So they have Bernadette is wearing sort of a lion type headdress with yellow deals sticking out of it. And during Mm -hmm. the movie, I was like, oh, that kind of like a bird of paradise. Actually, it's like the Grevillea, Grevillea, which is a native flower. And then it's Adam's dress that is the golden wattle, which is the national flower of Mm. Australia. Then they go away. They come back out. And they are frilled-necked lizards, which is the actual type of lizard. (laughs) That's my favorite costume in this entire movie. It's specifically, for me, Bernadette in that costume. (laughs) Just her facial expressions are so different than Mitzi and Felicia that it really is a great contrast. But yes, yes, doing all the facial things while popping up the frill in the back. With their little like blue tongues. I mean, that is my favorite thing. But they are the lizards. And then they are emus. And another trivia fact that I learned was those emu heads did not make it alive. They actually Uh used them to play cricket with. Because they were just polystyrene. So they were like, oh, okay. ha, 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 hit the cricket ball with the emu head. And then, of course, they won an Oscar for costumes. And I learned this in an interview with the Australian costume preservation people. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, it's hard to hear. And they were like, but you got to remember, we bought all this shit at Kmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like falling apart. They were like, we didn't even sew most of this stuff. We like taped it together. <laughs> so yeah. it didn't survive the shoot. <laughs> Anyway, so those emu heads are definitely something that didn't make it out alive. Well, much like many of the emus of the Great Emu War. <laughs> what is Wait, it? are you not familiar with the Great Emu War? No, should I be? Yeah, what you is should it? be. Is it a... That's a big part of Australian history. God damn it. Oh, my knowledge. No, it's wrong. okay. But basically, emus were becoming a menace to farmers and the, it was such a big problem that the farmers called in the government to deploy troops to come help them yes. cull this emu herd that was running rampant. And they couldn't. And basically, the emus were so evasive <laughs> that it took, I don't know, five or six tries in different locations yes. around the country to try to take down this emu horde. That makes me so happy. It's a really interesting piece of history. Oh, man, I didn't know that. God, okay, that makes it even better. So we have the emus, and then, of course, at the end there, we have the Sydney Opera House. That is just such a fun thing. And I feel like it goes back to the sort of why and how Australian drag is different. Mm-hmm. That show is like, here is who we are. We are all of these things. The natural, the artificial, the aboriginal, the introduced... The audience didn't like it that much, but I did. (laughs) I loved it as well. I would have been standing and cheering, but who was, in fact, standing and cheering were the most important people, Bob and Benji and Marion. And the Benji part was a bit of a surprise. Uh (laughs) (laughs) This child has caused two people to pass out so far in this movie. Correct. (laughs) Because, of course, Tick just eats it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Falls right over. Well, he had even checked with Marion before the show to make sure that Benji wasn't going to be there. And she lied to him. And I kind of get it. 
It's unfortunate so. that it had to be that way, but at the same time, he needed to see his son reacting that way to his performance, I think. And it sets off their relationship, which is a pretty interesting one. There's a line that comes a little bit later where Tick is trying to decide what type of person he needs to be around Benji. And Benji, of course, being the accepting, wonderful kid that he is, is trying to put him at ease. And I think one of my favorite lines is when they're sitting by a creek or a river bed and Tick comes up behind Benji and says, so what's it like to have a father? And Benji's like, it's okay. So uh, what's it like to finally have a father? It's okay. <laughs> and it's like, they're just both being so honest in that. Like, first of all, who would ask a child that question? What's it like to have a father? No pressure. Do you like me? Comma, that father being me. And then yeah. the son being like, it's okay. You know? And I think yeah. the reason it was just okay in that moment is because Benji knew that Tick wasn't being his full authentic self with him. And that's all he wanted for his dad. Yeah. Ugh, it is a nice, but then of course we get all of that reassurance. And that kid is such good casting. And mm -hmm. I have his name here, Mark Holmes. He actually didn't continue acting. He did a couple of more little tiny things, but he stopped acting after 98. But he did a beautiful job in this. So he I'm did. glad that they found him. One thing I was wanting to talk about, and I don't really have a great answer for this. So I just kind of want to ask you, at the very beginning, we find out that Adam's childhood dream was to go hike Kings Canyon in drag. Yep. And then he goes and does that. And it's one of our sort of finale scenes of the movie. What do you think that's about for him? Like, what do you think that symbolizes for him? Or like, I get why it'd be cool to do. But given all of Adam's shit, is it? That's a good question. It's a really good question. And I don't feel like I have a profound answer for it. Me neither. I mean, Bernadette at least had a nice quip about it. <laughs> A cock on a frock <laughs> a, in a frock. A, a cock and a frock on a rock. Yeah. yeah. Adam just wanted to be a cock and a frock on a rock. I don't know. Maybe there's more that we don't know, or maybe it was to do with the whole promising his mom. Mm -hmm. Oh, it'll make me less gay, and maybe I'll be a nice farm girl and whatever. So maybe it's sort of his way of being like, I hiked this shit and I did it in drag. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I don't feel like that's super clearly established in the movie, like what his motivation is there. I don't think it is. When we first heard at the beginning of the movie that that was an aspiration of his, it kind of seemed to me like, what's the Hollywood phrase, doing it backwards and in heels? Oh, well, that's the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers thing, but I don't remember what the... Oh, okay. I mean, is that what... Kind of. Like, anybody can do this, I'm going to do it the hard way, or... Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I'm on Ginger Rogers, this bitch. Yeah. I climbed Pike's Peak while yeah. wearing a full suit, which, funny story, is something that... I saw happen. <laughs> there were two guys hiking Pike's Peak in full suits, like three-piece suits mm -hmm. and briefcases, dress shoes, all oh, the rest God. of us out there looking like fools <laughs> in our sneakers and The dress shoes shorts. are the scariest part of that. Slick bottoms. People like to have these big momentous efforts and to do it your way makes a lot of sense. It's, I would say, probably something that was just about self-actualization. Yeah. But then when they got there, I don't know if you really remember what happens at the top, but Adam, after they've gazed across this beautiful landscape at sunset, he kind of like just stands there and says, well, we did it. 
And then they turn around and walk back. Yeah, basically, like, what do I do now? You know, and it's like, okay. <laughs> Go home, I guess. Check that off the list, you know. Yeah. And so I don't know if it brought him the fulfillment that he expected or if that he was just doing it to have done it and to yeah. say that. Maybe that reaction is in itself the point. Maybe that's why the movie is showing us this. So like, oh, you got up here. What do we do now? We go back home. Mm-hmm. Life keeps going. But at any rate, it definitely makes for some beautiful shots. It so does. cool. I don't care. Do it. I looked at the award cycle for that year and they won pretty much every single best costuming yes. award, except for the awards circuit community awards in which awards circuit community awards. Yes. Okay. I, which does not sound real, but they lost to interview with a vampire. So. All right. All right. Yeah, they did. They absolutely killed it with the costumes. The co-costume designers were Lizzie Gardner, who actually grew up with Stephen Elliott, and then Tim Chappell, who was a designer from the drag scene. So they were both very new to film costume design, and they just brought every ounce of creativity they had. Their budget was tiny. I've seen different numbers, and so I don't really want to cite one because they vary a bit. But let's just point out that they had enough money that that 15% discount at Kmart was really what swung it for them. The flip-flop dress cost $7. <laughs> so these people had like $7 and a Kmart employee discount and they won a fucking Oscar. And yes. I think it is so amazing. It's empowering too for someone like me who, if I need <laughs> to be fabulous in a pinch, yeah, flip-flop dress mm-hmm. inspired. Yes, exactly. There's been a big trend for men's kilts lately. So you mm. could do like a flip-flop kilt, I feel like. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. But the flip-flop dress, side story, was originally supposed to be credit cards, like a credit card dress, but they couldn't get any of the credit card companies to approve it because they were just like, well, we're this Australian drag queen movie. And everybody was like, no, get out. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, then they made a flip-flop dress instead, and then they won an Oscar, and then American Express was like, okay. And so that's what Lizzie wore to the Oscars, was a dress made out of Amex credit cards that she That's funny. Mm Mm-hmm. And then speaking of the credits, you called out that Tim Chappell performs in the credits. And we have Mm -hmm. some other gems from the credits. (laughs) There are some great nicknames. The film was filmed in Dragorama, if I remember correctly. That was a real thing, too. Yes, yes. Like an actual logo and everything. No, no, no. Even more. It was an actual... They put disco balls and colored lights and put them on during the end scene. So Dragorama is literally like in the theater, we have disco balls. That's amazing. (laughs) And then one very memorable after credits scene, which neither of us expected. (laughs) Yes, the sex doll kite (laughs) has flown to Japan. I love that kite so much. Honestly, one of my favorite little moments in the movie is they get the kite up and then Bernadette is just so happy and she's looking up at it and then does this little like, oh, mouth like the sex doll has. <laughs> it's, it's just like, oh. And then it's so sad too when oh, God, Adam lets go of the string and it just flies off. But then it comes full circle where we get this like three or four mm-hmm. second shot at the very end of the yeah. movie where we get somebody in a beautiful temple garden area coming across this kite. It just kind of like falls upon them, you know, gracefully. And he's just like, what What do I do with this? And then it just cuts to black and that's the end. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is one of the better after credit scenes that's ever been done for sure. 
One thing that you said during our watch of the movie that I really liked that I wanted to bring up. So at a certain point, they are stopping near, I guess, the billabong. I did look up the definition of a billabong. Based on that, I'm unclear on whether this is one. What it is, however, is a shallow body of water. Yes. With like trees sticking up out of it. So they find this and they go running in there to playfully splash water on each other. And in the moment, we were both like, oh, no, crocodiles, crocodiles. And then you had a film reference for this that I, I, did. <laughs> I loved so much and completely came out of left field for me. Do you want to explain that? Yeah. So the irresponsibility of randomly going into this body of water in the desert in Australia, where we've already established that everything is trying to kill you, <laughs> kind of reminded me of the flippancy with which Derek Zoolander and his friends had a gasoline fight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just like gleefully, like, this is so much fun. And exactly. I'm not aware that I could die from this immediately. Ugh. The movie would have taken on a much different tone if it had dealt with the ramifications of yeah. a crocodile coming out. But <laughs> maybe a crocodile comes out and eats Adam, and then everybody's just like happier for the rest of the movie. True. <laughs> no more of his bullshit. <laughs> uh, I actually have a kind of twisted affection for Adam. His behavior is insane. He would be so irritating to know in person. It just, the I don't know, like the heart on the sleeve palpability of how much he is acting out his own shit is hard for me not to be like, oh, you terrible, terrible little dumbass. You know, just like I feel for him, but I also don't want to be with him, near him. <laughs> I don't know that I've gotten to the point of endearing. He made his jaw bandage into bunny ears. Okay, but that's, that's, Okay. <laughs> I know some pretty awful people with some pretty great style. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. In fact, in the Uncharted episode, we got that with Joe Braddock, who's just a straight up murderer. True. A very stylish lady. I don't know if it was what he was saying and doing or the fact that it felt kind of like he was getting away with it that bothered me most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I get that. But speaking of things that may or may not have been gotten away with, Cynthia. Yes. So before we go down this what is undoubtedly a rabbit hole for a lot of viewers. In doing some research about this, apparently Cynthia was meant to be a clear critique of racist stereotypes. Okay. Problem is, did it land as a critique? Kind of? Like, you can tell they're not doing it straight. You know, like, they're not doing it with a straight face. But I'm not sure it landed. It's uncomfortable. I don't think it did. Yeah, it was uncomfortable. That is true. And it serves to show us a side of Bob as the person who had kind of unwillingly entered into a relationship with her and brought her home. But I don't think it really lands either. And there were some very interesting scenes that came out of their relationship, but I didn't really get the critique part. I couldn't really tell what purpose it was serving at the time. And the ping pong ball sound effects were... Oh. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, the people who I really want to hear from about this are... So she's in the movie, she's meant to be Filipino. They just pick up a lot of stereotypes and then just throw them at you in like mm -hmm. a big bundle. Anyway, but, you know, we're not the people who have really a right to say much about this, except that it is uncomfortable and it seems like a problem. I guess it's good to know they meant it as satire. In a movie full of satire, I am surprised I didn't pick it up as satire, I guess. Yeah. We've been laughing kind of at everything else, but we definitely didn't allow ourselves to laugh at that. 
At least not at all. I mean, she has lines and moments outside of that characterization, but still it is kind of like, I mean, I'm glad that she goes off to do her own thing at the end. She makes choices. She does things. She has agency. The question is just the writers didn't treat her right. (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, she goes off to live her truth, which everybody (laughs) is entitled to do. I think if it had been balanced with more scenes of her as a complex character, rather than just kind of this trope, I would have been able to see that better, maybe. Yeah. I mean, during our watch of the movie, I was mentioning that to me, it seemed like they built her the way they did to create as direct a contrast to Bernadette as possible. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it probably comes from that. I think they just tried to do too many things with Cynthia's character. And if the idea was to have a contrast for Bernadette so that you buy into Bob and Bernadette at the end... Why wrap up all of this other shit with it? Yes. You didn't need her to be Filipino to do that. It's weird. It's definitely one of those big question marks for me with the movie. Please write in with your observations as well, because we are not the authority on this by any means. (laughs) No. And we are potentially missing out on something massive that we were supposed to learn about Cynthia during the watch of the movie. Something I did learn about Cynthia, or Julia Cortez, which is her real name, the actress's name, Her only other role was Rita Repulsa in 1995's Power Rangers movie. (laughs) Nice. Okay. there you go. (laughs) The other thing that we haven't talked about, and Mason, this is very serious, is ABBA. Oh, okay. I thought we had shifted gears. You thought I was going uh, hate legislation direction? I was, actually. No, I was just talking about ABBA turds. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Adam's ABBA turd is a major (laughs) plot point. Oh, man. Okay. The director has stated that while he cannot give us any more detail than this, the abaturd is real. No. It comes from a real story. I don't think the turd in the movie is real. Oh, like, I'm not gosh. saying that that specific turd is an abaturd. What I am saying, though, is that he took this from a real thing. Oh, my gosh. Somebody actually... Yes. Uh... Has an abaturd. Somebody that he knows has an abaturd. What's this? That, my darling, is my most treasured possession in the whole wide world. But what is it? Well, a few years ago, I went on a pilgrimage backstage to an ABBA concert, hoping to grab an audience with Her Royal Highness Agnetha. Well, when I saw her ducking into the ladies' loo, naturally I followed her in. And after she'd finished her business, I ducked into the cubicle, only to find she left me a little gift sitting in the toilet bowl. What are you telling me? This is an ABBA turd? And also, the other ABBA fact that I have for you is that the North American ABBA fan club boycotted this movie. (laughs) With the rationale that it made ABBA look bad. <laughs> That's oh, I funny. love it so much. So ABBA gave them the rights, and they were like the first movie that ABBA ever gave rights to. Mm-hmm. And they only got them like halfway through shooting. It was the first day of shooting, and they shot the opening and closing sequences in the Sydney Club at the same time. So the second one is Mamma Mia, mm-hmm. and they were still waiting on the rights, and they were filming it with a placeholder song. But they got the rights halfway through that day. And then for the rest of the shoot, they just made ABBA jokes because now ABBA couldn't take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Did ABBA themselves make an official statement at any point trying to retract or distance themselves from the movie? I think they probably were fine with it. But I mean, maybe I didn't find anything about that. But one thing I did find was that so ABBA came from Eurovision. Mm -hmm. And for a couple of years after they won Eurovision, they weren't really taking off anywhere except Australia. So interesting. Australia had in, well, it would have been the 70s and 80s, 
probably at one of the highest concentrations of ABBA fans in the world. And so mm. that's another piece of context unique to this movie that feels quirky to us outsiders, non-Australians, but is another sort of cultural reference. That's really interesting. For the Aussies in the house, yeah. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff. So in the first segment, we mentioned that we would be coming back a little bit to a topic that sucks, <laughs> which is, of course, that all of this did not go away, and we are still facing the same type of hatred and discrimination. And right at this moment in this last month, especially for drag performers in actually our home state of Tennessee. Correct. 30 years on, we are still discriminating and finding ways to shut down drag performances, what legislatures would call adult yeah. cabaret performances in public spaces. And the idea being that they are sheltering children from exposure to a potentially dangerous world, whatever that means. It's just especially frustrating when it's your home. And we talked a little bit about how strong the LGBTQ community in Knoxville is mm -hmm. and in many other places in the South. I think that's, I've mentioned it before, but those people fighting that battle and doing it while having to protect themselves and their families and their friends and make choices about balancing what they believe is right with being able to be employed. Yes. With their health care. Just, yeah. so there are a few people on this planet that I admire more. Yeah. And another thing that really bothers me most about this specific piece of legislation is how vague it is and yes. how it opens up the ability to be enforced in any number of ways that are discriminatory to any number of communities. And mm -hmm. it's really frustrating to see that it's already passed. The wording is both weirdly vague and in some cases weirdly specific. Like they felt it necessary to call out go-go dancers, which I didn't even is the thing anymore but if for anyway. those disco clubs that <laughs> right. still i don't know what exist. a go-go dancer is but i'm picturing very tall boots yeah in the cages <laughs> <laughs> tall boots yeah. in austin powers so, yeah exactly so the excerpt from the bill which by the way unfortunately was signed by tennessee governor bill lee feel free to send him your abiturts and it goes into effect on july 1st so the language is it defines an adult cabaret performance as a performance quote that features topless dancers go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, does that look different from exotic dancers, male and female impersonators who provide entertainment that appeals to a prurient interest or similar entertainers. So on the one hand, it doesn't say all male and female impersonators. So things like the very famous and awesome sounding, I don't know why you, whatever, don't take your kids to drag story time if you don't want them to go. How is that hard? Mm -hmm. Anyway, something like that should not be included under this bill, because it says there's no punctuation in between it. It says male or female impersonators who provide entertainment that appeals to a prurient interest. Prurient meaning a sexual, sexually driven, sexually whatever provocative interest or similar entertainers. But all of these things in that list are sexual. And even the male and female impersonators specifically calls out that appeal to a sexual interest. The appealing part is the tricky part because you could say, hey, maybe they're, they're doing sexual stuff, but Right. It's vague. It's risky. Yeah. I mean, that piece about appealing and you can't control what or who something appeals to, you yeah. know, kind of seems like, well, we're going to put a ban on 
showing your feet at the beach because some people are into that. And it's like, whoa, wh- uh, yeah. uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is something that people all throughout this LGBTQ community have been saying for a long time, which is for some reason, and I think we know what that reason is, anyone who does not fit into this sort of heteroses box, whatever, is seen as inherently more sexual. Straight cis people are totally healthy, normal defaults. Nothing sexual about mm-hmm. that. And then you do something different or you feel something different or you are something different. And then that becomes sexualizing. So it's almost like they're saying there is no such thing as a non-sexual drag performer because your presentation is about sexual aberrance. Exactly. And that's stupid. (laughs) Preach. Preach, sister. (laughs) I'm just thinking of that. (laughs) I think it was in Glass Onion. There's just that line where he's got his hands in his pocket and he's like, it's so dumb. (laughs) It's just so dumb. (laughs) You know, and it's that. It's like, it's the emperor's new clothes. It's just so dumb. It's completely transparent. Yes. Anyway, I took it back to film. Did you like that? Yeah, I did. Yes. No, but I don't really know how to end that conversation other than to say that I know that this isn't the conclusion to the story, and it's a very frustrating point in history, but the thing that we want to endorse here is the continuation of the fight. There have been so many incredible women and men who have fought for this cause over the years, and that fight has to continue. And Emily, I know that you have some organizations that you've researched or that you are familiar with that would be great partners in continuing this fight if you want to shout them out. I mean, I can't say that I've done the greatest all-time research, so I would be very extremely open to somebody sending us like, hey, here's who you should support. The ACLU, I think in this case, you know, the Tennessee chapter of the ACLU will be actively working on how can we contest this? How can we do things that clarify that language so that people can know if I do my charity drag queen story time, am I going to be arrested? So I think in this particular case, the ACLU is a good choice. I also have an acquaintance who actually founded and runs the Trans Empowerment Project. And you can find them at transempowerment.org. Jack is the founder. He was actually the first trans man to run for political office in the South. So working very hard to do the best for all of us. Awesome. So Emily, for our next episode, we will be winding the clock back a little bit in doing our first 80s movie which is going to be Romancing the Stone. Yes, 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 yes. I'm very excited. Another movie that I hope we do at some point is The Lost City with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. And the reason I bring it up is that I was watching that and I was like, this is Romancing the Stone. This is just basically like a slightly tweaked Romancing the Stone. So I'm excited because... so. I feel like we both watched this movie a lot when Mm -hmm. we were younger. It's definitely one of those adventure movies that's on the short list of Emily Mason adventure movies from when we were kids. Yep. So I'm always happy to watch it. I feel like the leads have this amazing dynamic. It has a lot of good humor in it. The locations are really fun and you feel them like you feel like you're there. So I'm excited. That's why. How about you? Oh, absolutely. And it's been a while since I've seen it, but I have seen The Lost City recently. So now I'm going to be on the lookout for those parallels. Even down to the wardrobe at the dance scene. Really? It's a homage. (laughs) (laughs) Homage read (laughs) ripoff. Yeah, well, anyway. Okay. The only difference is they were like, (laughs) this is so mean. They were like, romancing the stone, but what if he's dumb? Mm -hmm. Basically. And he's not dumb. He's He's not. He's just sweet and 
approaching things differently, but definitely not dumb, just sort of meant to like, that's the stereotype. But I mean, that's kind of the only difference. I really like The Lost City. Why am I talking about a movie that's not the one we're doing? The point is, this is the OG. Romancing the Stone is a great movie. It is definitely an adventure reference, especially for like adventure rom-com reference. Yes. If we ever do movies like Fool's Gold, mm-hmm. this is a touchstone for both adventure movies and sort of adventure rom-coms. So great movie. Very excited. We will talk about its parallels, its comedic and romantic moments all in the next episode of The Adventurelings. Adventurelings! We are on Instagram at The Adventurelings. We are on the internet at the Adventure Links. Nope, at www.adventurelinks.com. I like we are on the internet at the Adventure Links. Just, that's all you need to know. <laughs> I mean, we are, mostly. True. We also have a Gmail, theadventurelinks at gmail.com. And we're on most all of the podcast platforms now. Yeah, we're doing pretty good. We are. Thank you for joining us today on Adventure Links, your weekly dose of filmic insanity. Mongolia? I done fucked up. I, I thought you were going to say more. Ner true. Ner true. true. Words have been spoken. It's kind of like the rural jur. It is the rural jur. Ner Ner true. Ner true. Have been spoken. Okay. Well, that's hitting the cutting room floor for sure. I feel like that first take was the only one where it actually sounded good, and I'll just okay. shut up. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say... I don't want to say. There we go. <laughs> there is a joke. It's going to be bad, though. Just warning you ahead of time. <laughs> okay. Oh. oh, wow, you got me! God damn it! No, I'm... <laughs> Did you mean that? Wait, who made a joke here, me or you? <laughs>